New Jersey copies New York's post-Bruin gun carry restrictions, plus gun violence archives Mark Bryant on his role in the CDC's gun defense use drama. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. All right. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and sign up for our free newsletter today if you want to keep updated on the latest in gun news across America. You can also purchase a membership if you want to support our reporting. That is how we fund our journalism here at The Reload. And you can find out all the details for that over at TheReload.com. This week, we are talking about the uh, CDC defensive gun use situation. We actually have somebody who was involved directly in the conversations that led the CDC changing how they describe the issue on their website. Uh, and that is Mark Bryant, is the executive director of the Gun Violence Archive. Thank you so much for being with us today, Mark. Can you just tell people a little bit more about yourself before we get going? Well, I'm the uh, executive director of the of the group. We have been around since uh, since 2013. Uh, prior to that, I was a systems analyst for IBM. Worked with various technology companies, primarily as a contractor, uh, for the last 35, 40 years. All right, and uh, Gun Violence Archive has become uh, pretty well known, uh, pretty influential in media uh, since you guys launched in 2013. So. Uh, we'll also get into, I think, some of the uh, just d- discussions over how you guys measure things, sure. methodology, and we can go back and forth on that um, uh, after we talk about the CDC situation. But so starting with the CDC situation, uh, CDC situation, you were involved in a series of conversations and a meeting with the agency last year uh, in the summertime where you were advocating for uh, change to uh, how they describe dispensive gun uses on their what their fast facts website, sort of the website where if somebody's going to Google CDC and defensive gun use, that's probably, probably where they're going to end up uh, in terms of, you know, it gives you sort of a starting point. I think it's supposed to be the idea. And um, the CDC initially resisted this idea, but then I guess was convinced to make this change uh, why don't you just uh, lay out in your own words what your um, concerns were with how the CDC had handled things sure. previous to this? Uh, I was brought in last. So I was the what I, I call the second wingman. I, uh, although most of the articles regarding this issue have put me at the forefront of it, uh, whatever. I, I can deal with that. Uh, but what what the initial issue was that the uh, CDC's numbers are not their numbers, but their their paragraph uh, addressed uh, extrapolations uh, on estimates of gun use, uh, of defensive gun use. And I have no problem with that. Uh, I think that is a reasonable thing for them to do. Uh, I think where we had an issue, GVA, and where the GVP folks had an issue was that there were several numbers that were listed uh, and and one was an outlier, uh, the 2.5 million uh, from Gary Kleck's uh, study from 1993, uh, much higher than everyone else. Uh, and uh, so we were concerned that it uh, causes issues. And, and the reasoning for that is uh, we would say 
uh, if we if gun violence prevention folks were advocating and saying there needs to be some regulation for uh, how things are, uh, how we look at saving lives, then all of a sudden this $2.5 million, I'm sorry, 2.5 million defensive gun use number was thrown out and it just stifled the conversation uh, because it was like, right. oh my God, you know, we're saving, look how many lives we're saving. And our concern was that number has never been proven. That number, number has never once been critically looked at by the right-hand side of this discussion. Now, Harvard's looked at it. Johns Hopkins has looked at it. A lot of research uh, PhDs have looked at this number, and they all consider it bad. They don't consider it a good number. It is, uh, I think, what, uh, I wrote it down, 41 times higher than the next set of numbers. So, you know, so if you look well, guess, at the three uh, estimates, if you look at the three estimates mm -hmm. that the CDC had from 60,000 to 2.5 million, that is a 41 times spread. Now, oh, right. if you were looking uh, at numbers for polling, uh, for whatever the issue is, uh, you would have a question if something was such an outlier that it was 41 times higher. And that's all that we did. We were going, you know, that number just, just it seems suspect. So why have it in there if it is suspect? Sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously your criticism focused a lot on that 2.5 million number. And we we, kept, we will certainly get into uh, the sort of statistical critiques that you guys had uh, for why you don't like that estimate. Um, but, you know, you're calling it an outlier there. And obviously it is a there is a massive range between the 60,000 and 2.5 million. That is the range that the CDC gave mm -hmm. on the website initially um, and was part of the reason why they, the concerns that they expressed uh, in comments about this. But uh, when you say it's an outlier, there were, there have been a number of other surveys that indicated uh, between a million and 2.5 million so, uh, defensive gun uses per year in the United States as well, including just recently one from uh, Georgetown University professor William English that found 1.6 million uh, among gun owners, people who identify as gun owners. Uh, so I guess, can you talk a little bit more about why you consider Gary Kleck's research particularly troubling, or do you just have a problem with all survey-based defensive gun uses? Well, no, not at all. You know, I, I think that, you know, that people use different methodologies. And so I have no problem with, uh, you know, you let's look at the methodologies uh, and, and we'll talk about methodologies of what GBA does later, which is which is very much important to me. So mm -hmm. what I look at is if a number is so far out of the range and and the others and the other studies you're looking at, uh, I would have to ask the question, have they been proofed? Has anyone proven that number? Has anybody on the gun rights side take a critical look at those numbers? Now, they, they're numbers that make your argument easier. But if you don't look at them critically and you don't ask for proof on those numbers, you know, you're starting to look at some issues uh, of credibility because you're picking on a number. You're picking up a number that you don't have any proof is, is even remotely correct. Mm -hmm. And uh, and this was obviously what was articulated in those emails that we reported on uh, from you and, and also from uh, 
uh, uh, got GBpedia um, founder uh, was, uh, Devin Hughes. Uh, Devin Hughes. Yes, yes. Apologies for his name slipped my mind for a moment. But th this is the sort of main statistical critique of Gary Kleck's work, right? That uh, if there were, and correct me if I'm getting this wrong, but the idea is if there were 2.5 million defensive gun uses per year, you should be able to verify some percentage of that through observable evidence like police reports or media reports. That's sure. Yeah. That's your basic argument. Right? Well, that's, that's that's the basic argument of statistics. You should be able to prove X amount. You know, you know sometimes extrapolations work extremely well. If I'm trying to determine uh, who's going to be the next president, I can I can tag 5,000 people. I can ask them what their point of view is, who they're going to vote for. And with a margin of error of about what two or three percent, I can come up with a number uh, that is fairly accurate. Now, if I look at a number that says there's a four-point four spread, and the next number says there's a nine-point spread, and the next one says uh, there's a 1,400-point spread, uh, you're going to be dubious of that 1,400-point spread. Uh, and that's all we're saying. We're not saying that that uh, academic research should not occur. We think that defensive gun use is an important a variable that has to be looked at in this gun discussion that we're having nationally. But we just don't think that when you have a number that is an outlier, and it is, you know, that's a uh, that's an issue. Right. And, and look, to me, um, as we talked about on last week's episode, where we dove into some of these, these concepts and how people try to measure defensive gun use, there is a, a, certainly an open conversation about what the right way to go about doing this is. And there are going to be both strengths and weaknesses to each approach, to your approach or to Gary Kleck's approach or the approach of other people using surveys. Um, I, one thing I'd, I'm interested in is uh, what, what would you consider uh, to be verification of a, a survey-based estimate? Like how much, if you're talking about millions per year and defensive gun uses in these surveys, how, how many would you expect to I mean, it seems like, so you guys at GBA have identified something around 2,000 per year. And we know uh, that number is verified. Low. And we know that number is low. Right. But so I, I guess what, you know, your point seems to be, we're only finding 2,000 of these incidents that make it into media reports or police reports. And we'll get into, uh, you know, how the, that side of it in a moment. But how many would you... Uh, Want to find if you were really go if there were really two point five million per well, year. Let's look at it this way. Let, let's kind of break that number down because the two point five million uh, suggests a lot of different things. It suggests that there are two point five million. Now, uh, uh, Collect and Lot both say, well, most of the time these are not uh, reported. Right. Okay. So they are taking a number that they don't know. Because if they say they don't know how many were not reported, then they're taking a number that, they're, that they just don't know, and they're trying to factor that in. Okay, so let's factor that in. Let's mm -hmm. let's give it the benefit of the doubt and try to factor it in. How many is most? Let them answer that. If well, they uh, say most aren't reported, how can mm -hmm. you justify having a number if the very first disclaimer that you throw on top of it is, well, we really can't count it? 
So if you know, I want to see on a two point five number, two point five million number, you should have an expectation of X number of people shot, X per X number of people killed, X number of police reports. You should have a substantial. If you got two point five million defensive gun uses, you're going to have more than two thousand that show up on police reports. That's just oh, well. Let's get into the police report question real quick. Sure. So I'm interested in your methodology here. You guys, right. you say that you use media reports and and police reports. Right. I've looked through the archive. I haven't done, yeah, I haven't looked at every single one. Right. But mo- the vast majority of them seem to be media reports. Is that accurate? And no? it, it, back, if you go back three years and four years, there were not nearly as many uh, law enforcement sites that easily made their data available. So, yeah, if you go back, most of our stuff was media back then. But you have to realize that every media report starts with a police report. It starts with somebody hearing something on the scanner, or it starts with uh, somebody knowing that someone's been shot. And so all of that, it, it is all the trickle down uh, of events. So it all starts with the police report. You know, some people blow off, oh, well, it was just a media report. Well, that media report didn't come out of thin air. And mm-hmm. you know, as well as I do, media does not just make up events uh, for for their uh, for their six o'clock news. They have enough that are already there that they don't have to make any up. So so everything starts with with either a a media report and then taking a police report to add detail or start with a police report and look at the media report to add texture. Because while the media report will have some bit of information, the police report will have others. And so between the two of them, you get a lot better textured information. Mm -hmm. But I guess the main problem with this approach, to me at least, seems to be that you wouldn't capture a lot of defense. This is sort of one of the things the CDC initially said about your approach uh, as well. But uh, so, as far as police reports go, what police reports do you have access to? Because, I mean, we can see right now, uh, even an agency like the FBI has trouble gathering police reports yes, they do. from local police, right? We I mean, look at the top 100. Problem, but, yeah, you're right. But yeah. We look at the top 150 cities. Mm-hmm. And from those top 150 cities, we can survey police department what their annual reports are, what their quarterly reports are, and we can see what they have that is listed uh, you know how they list it uh, now. Okay. Do they not? And do some of them not list defensive gun uses? Yes, that's correct. They do not, uh, and so you can't count those. Uh, but some of them do. They have a and some of them do, and we count them. Oh, okay, if, interesting. Yeah. So you know, there's a, and there's also a bit of a misconception that we only count if somebody has been shot or killed, and that's not the case. Uh, we will right. count defensive gun use uh, even if it is. Um, you know, somebody goes out into their front yard and uh, waves a gun at uh, at a car thief and to scare mm-hmm. him off. Now, I, where I have a problem personally is uh, the gun rights folks, and, and I apologize for clumping gun rights folks together. And we can talk about the statistics of that in a little bit. Uh, but the gun rights folks uh, like to say that, uh, well, most, most of these aren't reported. But we also like to say that our we have really good people. These are good, straightforward, honest, patriotic American people. Yes, most are. So I'm befuddled when you have a person that is still in cars and you have thought that it's 
sufficient enough of a threat to yourself, your family, or your possessions to present lethal force that you would then turn around and ignore calling the police. Basically, what you're saying is that, well, my problem's over. I got rid of it. He can go down the road and do whatever he wants. And, and that's a selfish move. And I, and I just don't think that's, I don't think it's accurate, which is why I don't think there's nearly as many we don't report it as, as some people like to say there are. Right. And this is. I have uh, more trust in gun owners. I have more, sure. I have a lot more trust in the honor and ethics of gun owners than to believe a majority of 2.5 million don't call the cops. And this was uh, what I described as dismissive dismissive dismissive, in my story uh, was this part of your described methodology. uh, Let me explain why I Mm -hmm. I view it that way, Uh, because I I understand where you're coming from as far as like if you are in a situation where you fear for your life because someone is presenting a threat to you, uh, you should call the police. Right. That seems like a base level obvious thing. Right. Um, But. There's a couple problems with that. One, uh, let me just, I'll just give you a, uh, an anecdote. I know you're a data guy, but I'll give you an anecdote sure. um, about a, a real life scenario that I, that I experienced years ago with an ex-girlfriend. She lived in Old Town, Alexandria, very nice uh, area of Virginia. And uh, someone came and tried to break, you know, get into her apartment while she was home. Uh, I was actually on the phone with her at the time this happened, but uh, it's a very scary situation, right? And I told her to hang up and call the police. Uh, and I, I got my gun and rushed there. Luckily, she had her own firearm um, and went and got her firearm, yelled at the person that she uh, had a gun and that, uh, and to leave. It's not their, their, you know, it's not their apartment. They can't come in there. Um, and luckily, the person did. Uh, you know, they, they, uh, ran off. The police came, uh, she never saw this was through, a, you know, she had a direct door to her apartment from the outside and it was sort of a, um, tinted glass or, you know, shaded glass. So you can't see in or out. Uh, but you can see that there's a person there and you could hear them trying to get in, uh, called the police, police came, person ran off, no shots fired. Uh, I'm sure the police took some sort of report, but how does an incident like that end up in uh, your database, for instance? If, Do you think it would? It would if the police documented it correctly. If they mm-hmm. documented it only as a shots fired, no injury call. So there are no shots fired. Well, okay. And, but also do not mention the defensive views that it was a person that, uh, that warned a bad guy that they had a gun and to please step away. Uh, if they, if they warn them, then uh, and that should be in the police report. And if it is, it's counted, you know, that's the thing. Mm-hmm. And, and, but the, but the interest in your anecdote is that the police were called. Sure. So that's, but, uh, that's a good thing. Yeah, certainly. Um, and I, again, I, you know, my anecdote, the police were called many times, the police may not be called in a scenario like that because you don't have much or they might not respond either if uh, you call them after the fact. Sure. Because there's not much information to give them. You don't have a description of the suspect. Someone comes. I believe this this is the scenario that CDC had put forth internally when they were discussing your uh, 
you know, the, the concerns that you guys had. Um, somebody comes to your, onto your property late at night. Uh, you don't necessarily get a description of them. You uh, present a gun, tell them to leave. They leave. You call the police. What are the police going to do? Uh, what, like, I just am very skeptical that that would even end up in uh, data that you can access. Uh, and uh, and on top of this, right, uh, the the William English survey from last year, right, that, which addressed a number of the outstanding concerns uh, with CLEC's work or some of the common critiques of them, like, you know, for instance, uh, I think this was brought up as well. CLEC asked people if they'd been in a defensive gun use encounter over the past, the previous year, and there was critique that people might not be remembering correctly. It might have been more than a year ago. There's issues with the that uh, rise arise with that. William English did his study differently. Asked over you know the course of your life if you'd been um, you know involved in a defensive gun use, and then used the average age of the people involved to calculate the yearly stats. There were a couple things that he addressed in that way. It was a larger survey with more people responded to it. Uh, he had a just respect representative sample in every state. Uh, you know, there were a number of things that were different about it, but it came out to the same uh, basic results, which was more than, uh, now it was 1.6 to be fair. Uh, Clex is 2.5. And I, and I see that there is, in, there's a number the of last thing that Clex has doubled down to 5.2. Well, Clex has, Clex will give a different, um, Collect. If you read the original surveys, has a different measure for depending on what factors you take into place, yes. and if you think that uh, perhaps people are uh, overrepresenting when they're legally defending themselves versus uh, you know illegally using a gun for, uh, against someone, he has different calculations based on different uh, factors that you to look at the results. But um, but the, the point with the English study isn't just that it's addresses some of the common critiques of Clex, but also he asked how uh, many people fire, you know, how many rounds were fired for each incident. And I believe it was over 80% had no rounds fired at all. Mm -hmm. And I, I do think that um, in a scenario where no rounds are fired and no harm comes to anyone, mm -hmm. it's much less likely that a police report is going to be filed for just so many different reasons, including perhaps, including for instance, the relationship between police and the community where uh, where self-defense encounter occurs, right? I mean, I don't know that there's a lot of um, young minorities who are going to be calling snitches. up the police to tell them they used a gun in self-defense if, if they yeah. don't have to. Yeah, where snitches get stitches. Or just like, your, you know, and, and that's and a that lot of people of aren't going to want to call the police if nothing has happened and they had to use a gun for self-defense because right. they might worry that they'll sure. get in trouble for something. You know, there's just a lot of back, reasons why you might and, call. And, and everything you said, I don't argue with, but it brings us up back to the original question of most people do not report it. Mm -hmm. We need to define most. There needs sure. to be an understanding of what most is. Because most might be fifty thousand. That's a big number, yeah. and it might be two million. Mm -hmm. But if you can't come up with a number that even remotely proves that, where are you? You're making you're using a number that just can't be justified. 
you know, I it, what if I were to say, and, and and let me back up for a second, back when back when GVA started, one of the things that I looked at was I was doing some blog stuff, and I was looking at numbers from both the right hand side of the aisle and from the left hand side of the aisle, and both of them were making up numbers like crazy. Both of them were making things up. So if the when the folks at whatever GVP group would say that there were 150,000 children shot last year, your side of the equation will go, you can't, there, there's no way. That's not, that's not true. There's no way that that's, a, that's the case. You, you look at all the police reports and there's not that many kids shot. I saw those arguments. We saw those arguments 10, 12 years ago. Mm -hmm. And now today you're ignoring that argument. Not you specifically, but the right hand right. side is ignoring that. They're going, oh well, maybe in that case, but not in this case. Uh, so right. yeah, I, I understand the, That's why we like to have routine. quantitative numbers rather than sure. guesstimates. Yeah, and look, I, I don't. That's think all that... we ask. That's all we ask the CDC to do. You mm -hmm. look at what their answer was, and all they did, they did not blow out just defensive gun use. They didn't say it does not exist. They just said there's a widespread of data and it needs more study. Yeah, they kind of changed it from. So let me get into why I think the change itself is as innocuous as the new language is like that. Yeah, they didn't endorse, you know, GVA's count or, or what have you. Uh, so and we did not that ask them to. Innocuous. Sure. We, we did not but, ask them to. Right. And that's fair. Um, uh, you did ask them to, to remove. Uh, you know, to just put something a placeholder, which is what they ended up I said, doing. So I, what we asked them to do was either come up with their, mm -hmm. uh, their own study, right, and come up with an honest number, or take guesstimates away that were misleading. Right. Uh, that that is that, that is what you asked them to do. Yes. Yes. Um, now here, so my point is uh, that not that the GVA archive on de defensive gun uses is um, should be shut down or is bad data or anything like that. My, my takeaway or my thought on this is you're probably capturing the most high profile incidents. That's, that's what well, I, one that's what I think you're doing. Field. Yes. Sure. And, and, and even occasionally when there's no one injured, uh, I believe Robert Verbruggen, maybe you have these numbers, Robert Verbruggen said he looked through the last year's data and 4% of them were incidents where people, where no one was injured um, and the rest had injuries. I think which it was a lot closer to 50%. I think 50%. most of that, I think most of our DGUs are zero, zero. Oh, so it, it may be uh, no shots fired. Uh, I apologize. Maybe, okay, I would uh, go with that, yeah. Yeah, and so that's, that's where I feel like... Um, maybe there isn't as much conflict between these two ways of measuring as, as it may seem at first, because again, in English's version, uh, you 80% or more, more than 80% of people reported not having to fire a shot at all. You mm -hmm. know, to me, there seems to be a, a way where, uh, you know, collecting data on incidents that make it into the news or into police reports, the limited police reports that you have access to, that's perfectly legitimate thing to do, and one way of uh, you know measuring this sort of thing. But you're capturing a different. Um, you you would tend to capture most of the high profile examples of defensive gun use, and then 
how do you capture the rest of them? Well, the only other way I could imagine is by just asking people directly whether they've ever been involved. And that does result in both of these approaches have their strengths and weaknesses. So my issue with the CDC change is that um, the CDC wasn't really endorsing anything in their old description. They they said 60 to 2.5 because that's what the various studies out there had produced. The 60,000 number comes from the National Crime Victimization Survey, which is, has its own issues, yes, um, you know, from from the fact that they're asking people who who self-identify as victims of crime whether they use the gun and self and they don't actually ask them if they use the gun. It's just, did you do something? And if they volunteer that they use the gun, then that's sure. what gets counted. There's a lot of you know, there's critiques to all of these different approaches, and uh, you know, I feel uh, the putting in that estimate. Um, and then they give you a link to a paper that the CDC had commissioned. Now it is from 2013, so I understand that it's a little bit older. And it'd be great if the CDC could um, update that paper or something along those lines. I know that was something that you put in as a possible example, but it just doesn't seem. It wasn't as though they endorsed Kleck's work. They just said, "Here are the, here's what the range is, and here's a paper to read more about this stuff." And now they've gone to a statement that says science is hard. Um, <laughs> you know, maybe someday we'll have better numbers, uh, which yeah. seems like a step back to me. Um, I, but obviously, I know for you that that's probably you don't you think the 2.5 is too misleading to be in there at all. Right. Is that that's your basic? I think that's really my, my basic, my personal okay. basic issue. You know, if I did the same thing, if I did an extrapolation to tell you that there were. 150,000 kids shot a year. You'd be on my butt in a heartbeat. The right-hand side, you and the other and the other uh, gun rights blogs would be on me like crazy if I were to come up with an extrapolation like that and then go, well, you know, I can't really prove that number, but that's my number and, and I'm justifying it. And the people on the GDP side go, yeah, that's a correct number. Well, that's not right either. They should be scrutinizing me just as well. So my really, maybe what we need to talk about is the fact, why do the, why does why does the left scrutinize the right's number and not scrutinize left's number? And why does the bloggers on the right fail to scrutinize numbers on the right? Uh, and just take them as as solid. Now that's all confirmation bias issues. But sure. you, you got to admit, you didn't do any research sure. to collect. I read the I read the articles that you wrote, and I read the, the, some other ones, and it was like, let's throw collect some softballs and let him say anything he wants, and uh, and then let's pound on the other side. Evidently, we were I forgot what you said, or, and what everybody else said as well. We coerced. Was it coerced? What was the word you said that we did to the CDC? Uh, lobbied? Well, I think yeah. that the trace called it lobbying. I guess. So my question um, is, do you also give that kind of scrutiny to the NRA's lobbying? About <laughs> yes, I think if you read the reload. You $200 would... million dollars worth of lobbying in the last 20 years, and all we did was put a paragraph, ask for a paragraph to have a change to be more clear? Sure. I mean, I think if you read the reload, you'll see we scrutinize the NRA quite a lot around here. But um, 
but you see well, what I'm saying. Yes, most, but most I, I will say really, too. most folks are not going to protect are, are going to protect the NRA, and they're not going to ever look at the the uh, the the why they lobby and what they lobby for and all that. But you pound on us. Sure. Uh, well, I will say that if I do believe that, look, there's there's obviously a, a level of partisanship involved in uh, sort of tribalism involved in why each side doesn't scrutinize themselves more. Sure. Uh, I don't know that I, I would disagree bias. that the reload is particularly yeah, it's confirmation uh, guilty bias of that. Issues. Yeah, sure. But um, I will say, too, that if the CD, if this story had been the opposite and it was, uh, you know, Wayne LaPierre and. John Lott lobbying the CDC in private to make a change to their website uh, to because they didn't like the political impact of what was on there. It probably would have been an even bigger story, quite frankly. Uh, this, have you checked to see if they have or have not done that? Uh, the, the CDC, uh, I don't have any. This this came from FOIA documents. <laughs> So I, I don't have like so any, you just made any other. You if somebody has evidence that they've done that, if it had been that, Wayne LaPierre, yeah. you would have jumped on it. But I but, would have, yes. Okay, yeah. but you haven't checked to yes. see if Wayne LaPierre and that group has done that. That's hey, that's a good question for another FOIA. I, I perhaps sure. would be useful. I didn't yeah. actually do this FOIA. No, was, I know you didn't. Performed by a gun rights lawyer. I just got the the documents after the fact. Sure. Yeah, um, so you know, if anyone has evidence something like that the cdc did say that they talked to all kinds of groups um and so maybe we will get more information in that area we don't have anything to that effect now um right. and and that's actually one of the things i wanted to get into because uh, you know we just went over the the um you know the, the statistical arguments the strengths and weaknesses of these various mm -hmm. approaches that and i think there are legitimate crit criticisms of the survey-based DGU mm -hmm. estimates and, uh, you know, the sort of media police report-based estimates that, that you know, uh, that you guys use at GBA. And uh, and I don't think that there's a perfect answer. I do, you know, personally, the, the idea that there's only 2,000 or so defensive gun uses in a country with 120 million gun owners does strike me as, uh, you know, counterintuitive. Wait, wait. I, I question, where do we get the 120 million gun owners? Uh, sorry, 120 million people who report having a gun in the home, according to the latest uh, AP poll and Gallup. Okay, okay. 46%. So that number has gone up because it was at Americans. 60. It was at 60 a couple of well, years ago. So you might be thinking of if so, if you ask people directly if they are gun owners, yeah. uh, you usually get a, a lower number of something like 35. Yeah, uh, I, I think of the 50, $50 million dollar, or 50 million uh, gun owners number. That's the one that I've also, seen. Also, there's more people in the country now, too. So Exactly, that's another, yeah. But I was just uh, wondering where that 120 number came from. Sure, yeah. It was from the how many people report having a gun in the home. Gotcha. Um, okay. Gun owners would be slightly lower, about 10 points lower. Right. 10 percentage points. So, uh, but that, but you get the idea. A lot of people own guns. I, no, no, I understand that. I have no issue with that. So that's, that's where like 2,000 per year. Well, as we uh, say in our thing, to be. as we say, we're very clear that we know that's not uh, completely accurate because we know there are there are those that are not reported. Uh, sure. But the interesting part but, is we only started putting DGU in at the request of gun rights folks. Okay. Sure. And and look, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with you guys doing it the way you do it. And I think 
uh, maybe the largest database of them. Is that right? I'm not, you know, there I may know be some, NRA yeah, Heritage, Heritage does the same I, thing. I know NRA sort of does it. Data, so I don't know. And I apologize. Yeah. I didn't mean to talk over you there. So No, it's okay. It's okay. No, I appreciate you coming on and us being able to have, yeah. you know, a civil exchange about this stuff because I'm interested in your point of view and I, I appreciate you engaging. Sure. So, um, uh, now the main criticism of all this is not necessarily over your statistical critiques of Gary Kleck's work. Uh, th- a lot of this stuff has been around since he did those surveys in the oh, 90s, yeah. right? These questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't see anything brand new in there as far as uh, what you guys were saying to the CDC. But um, the main problem people have with it is that it, this happened in private. Um, it involved both the White House and Senator Durbin's office connecting the CDC with uh, with um you and Hughes and, and, and then also, of course, the involvement of Poe Murray, who is, you know, Devin Hughes and you are sort of uh, try to uh, stick more to where the data research. Wants. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, Poe Murray is much more of a traditional gun control activist uh, and really on the more bombastic side of things. You know, she's commonly uh, attacks people who are not in favor of assault weapons bans or AR-15 bans as being uh, in favor of arming mass shooters and killing children. Uh, I don't say that in a, I'm not paraphrasing this, things she's literally said, uh, including to one of the, uh, a father who lost his daughter at Parkland. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, the sort of the, the way this came about with the CDC not seeking anyone else's input and doing it behind closed doors effectively uh, was, I think, the source of the most criticism here. Do you let find me, any issue with that well, process? Let me, let me you think clarify that a little bit. Uh, I had no mm-hmm. contact with anyone other than uh, I was told, let's see, how'd it go? I was asked by Devin and Poe, hey, there's going to be a, a Zoom, and uh, could you sit in on it uh, and with your statistics on uh, DGUs. That was it. I mean, I was, if there was a, if there was a deeper than that, I never saw it or heard it. Uh, I had, I, none. Now we, we have a tendency to, uh, we do not lobby. Uh, And, and as you and I talked about on an email exchange, uh, I was talking about the statistics and whether the statistics are accurate. I don't really consider that lobbying. I can see where some others would. So I'm, I'm, I can back off myself and say, uh, I don't need to be lobbying because that's not my job. Well, sure. And I understand. And you, you didn't seem to be involved in the initial conversation. I will say that from I was, all the I was only at the very end, okay, right, at but, the, uh, right at the Zoom meeting. Okay. All right. So that's, that is good clarity to have for everyone. Um, uh, but obviously your comments strayed into more than just the, the data aspect. It, it strayed into the political impact of Gary Kleck's work, right? I mean, this was, you already mentioned it at the beginning of the show. Sure. And I don't think you're disputing that. So, uh, I mean, is that, do you, do you think people are wrong to be concerned about how this went? Well, I think that, you know, if you, if you look at a, a statistic, or a number that is that stops conversations or that stifles conversations. You gotta be dubious of that number. If it unless it's you know, if it can be proven, if if Clack could prove his number, 
and and how I'm not sure. I think if some if he could come up with 25 percent of his number and proof it, I think people would shut up because they would go, okay, that was hard to do, and it brought that out. But you know, when you look at the NRA, they have their own defensive gun use database. They mm-hmm. use our numbers at least part of the time. I know that because I made a typo that was a that it was a mark typo. It's the same one I make damn near all the time. And uh, I made it, and I looked at uh, I was looking at the NRA's database, and there was my typo. Now we had already corrected ours. Uh, because when we went through the verification process, somebody goes, great. You know, he flipped letters again. And so mm-hmm. uh, it went away, but it was still on the NRA. So, uh, you know, I think that it's fair to ask the questions, is this a legitimate number? I think that is very fair. I don't think that's a lobbying sure. issue. I think that's just a straight up, if any number in Congress, any number any politician ever says, it should be it should be questioned. Yeah, I think that again, I think it's fine to question this stuff or even to to speak to the CDC about it. What I think people have a problem with is that this was done in private and that the CDC didn't seek anyone else's point of view. See, I don't know uh, that. I, I can only right. assume that. Do you know that? Well, the the FOIA was for all the communications that were related to this, and okay, uh, I, I just so, don't yeah, know, and I don't know what was redacted. I saw that there was a lot of stuff that was redacted, so I have no idea what was in it. Uh, CDC so. says I asked them directly; they didn't say that anyone else. They reached out to anyone okay. else. They said okay. they talked to other groups. They didn't really reach. They didn't really reach out to me. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I was just I was I, I won't say I was drug in because I voluntarily came in, at, but sure. uh, I, I would not have considered that a private meeting. It was a Zoom meeting uh, with everybody that keeps records. Uh, that's not a private meeting. That's just a meeting. Well, it wasn't open to the public, is what I mean. The public didn't know this I, change was happening. I understand that. Stuff that. I understand that. I, I would yeah. have considered that nothing more than a, yeah. how to best describe it. Uh, if you were to call the CDC and you get on a Zoom meeting with them asking them questions, would mm-hmm. you consider that a public meeting or a private meeting? Well, a private meeting, if it's not and open would to the you public, consider yeah. that right or wrong? Well, uh, you know, look, I'm not saying that you did anything wrong necessarily. No, 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 no. I'm the question saying, is about the process. Is it a is it a private? If, are we using the word private meeting as a as a derogatory term, or is it just that's how the meeting happened? You know, I think it's landed. just a description of how it how exactly. it happened. So, uh, but if you had called the if you had to call CDC and ask the question, mm-hmm. and and you ended up on a Zoom call, would that be a wrong thing if it was? The public was not invited. Well, no, but I I wasn't. But you were advocating for a change, and so if they made that change after only consulting you in private, see that was that seemed to be an issue. All all we knew was we stated a case, Uh and then it disappeared for months. Right, and then all of a sudden, I get a note that said, "Oh yeah, we changed this." (laughs) That was it. Yeah, and I understand that that you know. Maybe it's not your decision whether the CDC, how it acts, right? I, I understand that you're on one I side. I told you know, somebody yeah. the other night, I, I, GVA is a pretty cool group, but uh, we don't have the juice to push the CDC around. Right. Okay. Well, so uh, just one one last uh, uh, segment here, I, just to go into, you know, you talked about how stats can move public opinion. 
and and that's what you're talking about with the 2.5 million DGUs a year. Uh, I think that it's a good transition to talk about uh, the mass shooting counter at GVA because that's mm-hmm. what you guys are most known for, of course. And there are obviously critiques of how uh, you do that. We've discussed it a little bit offline, but I thought sure. it would be good to to include it here too, right? So you guys use um, what has now become sort of the media standard for what mass shooting means, which is four or more injured, not including the shooter, right? Injured or killed, not including mm-hmm. the shooter, yes. Right. And so this produces um, uh, a much larger number than a lot of other methodologies, right? Like, uh, yeah. for instance, the Associated Press has a different standard. Um, Mother Jones has their own standard. Associated Press is closer. Sort of the older way of looking at mass shootings was four or more killed uh, in a single incident. Um, and obviously, if you use the two different methodologies, you can get very different numbers. Mm-hmm. I think, what do you got? What's your number at now? It's over 600. Right, right, 620 year. or something. But see, I right. think you just did what a lot of folks do. You mm-hmm. uh, conflated two different subjects as one. There's mass shootings. There's mass murders. Mass mm-hmm. murders is an FBI definition of four or more kill. Now, that could be whether it's a bombing or a shooting or a stabbing or whatever. So right. when Mother Jones and all of them, they derive mass killings, mass murders, and that's four or more killed. Uh, and that's fine. That's what method. That's how that's why you write a methodology. And, you know, if you look at us, we have both numbers up. We have both mm-hmm. mass murder and mass shooting because they are two different things to blow off. And I'm not saying you're blowing off, but to blow mm-hmm. off thousands of people who are shot each year that by sheer luck, they're not dead, that they shouldn't be in, a, in, in this count. Uh, you know, we, we are open kimono on our mass shooting number very intentionally. I want to see everything where there's four or more shot or killed on the record. And then you, the blogger, you, the journalist, you, the uh, advocate, can go into those numbers, look at the subcategories, and say, oh, well, that was a drive-by shooting. We're not going to count that. Or that was a domestic violence in a house. We're not going to count that. Uh, even right. though the same number of people die in the mm-hmm. same quantity of victims in the shootings. So that's, that's where we are on it. You know, we are open kimono. Yeah. We want to say, here's the number. You want to do more research on the number? That's fine. That's what we're here for. Right. I, under, uh, I understand, and I don't. I don't think there's anything wrong with keeping track of four or more people injured in a, sh- in a shooting. Mm-hmm. The problem comes with language and how this number gets used in media, which is anytime there is a mass public killing, people will point to that number as though there are uh, everything in there is similar to what has just happened in Uvalde or Parkland or. I can't, I can't make that assumption. I don't know what people, how, how people infer. I can't make that. You assumption. haven't seen that? Oh, I see how people write, but I can't see how the readers infer. That's not, I mean, that's, that would require mind reading on my part. Sure. But, uh, so and I'm you've probably heard this critique before, but, uh, the, the problem with that count, uh, in my view is that it lumps in a lot of shootings that are very different from one another. There are different mm-hmm. issues that yes. lead to those different kinds of shootings. And so I don't know how valuable it is 
to lump them together uh, other than to make people think that something like Uvalde or Buffalo or what have you happens much more often than it does. Not to, which I understand what you mean is like these people still got injured or, or killed and that's, that it doesn't mean they don't matter or that we shouldn't think well, about the, these issues. Saying. That's kind of what you're saying, that they don't it's matter. It's not. It's not at all. But, that, but you, uh, but going, you can't well, solve let, – let me just finish my point and then I'll give you, sure. I'll give you some time. You, you can't solve – uh, you know, a shootout situation during a, a, a drug sale uh, or, um, you know, a shooting into a crowd uh, that's gang related in the same way that you can solve, uh, you know, these mass murder incidents that one person commits at a school or in a public place. Mm -hmm. They're very different problems. I mean, uh, isn't that right? I mean, they well, require different solutions. And so try taking them and lumping them all together. It might be useful data to look at long-term trends. You know, your data only goes back to 2013. I understand that, you know, just, that's just the limitation of, of reality. Of That's when you started studying it and that's fine. But, um, you know, it, I just think it, rather than add context, it takes context away by move, putting all these things together as though they're the, the same uh, problem in society and potentially have the same solutions, which they don't. But you could you could make that same argument about any aggregate. Uh, that, but, but what we look at and what we're very vocal about is there is not a single solution. We have never said there was a single solution. Uh, domestic violence, mass shootings, uh, gang mass shootings, a lot of those are all different than uh, going into Aurora Theater or Uvalde. Uh, those are different, and we know that. Uh, that's why when you look at the gross number, it has a bunch of subcategories that then provide the texture. Now, do I like that uh, they use the, the big number and don't give it any context? Not really. But, but they're going to use the number they're going to use. Whether I made it three or more, seven or more, two or more, whatever the number that we pick, somebody's going to have a complaint with it because sure. it's not going to be a number. And, and one of the reasons that the gun rights side has a problem with it and that I've heard verbalized more than once, it really makes you guys look worse. It, it, it's just not a good number for you. And I understand that that's not why it's there, but it doesn't make, it doesn't make gun ownership look good uh, because it makes, it makes you see something that maybe it's not really there. And I agree with you. Contextually, mass shootings is a diverse category. We put all those other variables in each individual report. So if you look at mass shootings, you can tell which ones are school shootings, which ones are gang violence, which ones are domestic violence, which ones are bar fights uh, and, and, and the like. So you get a, uh, but you have to have a base. And, and our base is just, you know, the word mass, mass shooting. Mass is a measurement of quantity. That's all it is. It's not a measurement of quantity if it's just a measurement of quantity. So you have to put mm -hmm. the other variables in there to give it context. That's what we do. Yeah, yeah I understand. Just to me, mass shooting, I think for the vast majority of regular people, when they hear that word, they think of the uh, you know, public mass killings. Well, the ones that I see, attention. they also look at drive-bys. Um, 
Mm-hmm. And and the guys on the right don't really, and Mother Jones is another example, don't really like talking about drive-bys and gang violence. Different mm-hmm. different issues, different solutions. And yeah. that we all need to look at that there are different solutions. And that needs right. to be emphasized. Sure. And I would I would also apply this critique to the Associated Press's basic count because like you mentioned there, the majority of people uh, where incidents where four or more people are killed in a single shooting uh, are actually domestic violence situations where someone sure. murders their family in their house, which is a different, again, right. uh, problem than something like mm-hmm. uh, uh, Buffalo. Or, right. Know, we already have enough of those first. We have enough. And that's to, why that number be is, worried about them. is a half inch below the first number. They're right. on, on the sure. chart. They are right next to each other. Okay. Well, I appreciate you coming on and, okay. and taking the time and having this, this uh, civil discussion. Uh, I think this was productive and fruitful, and I think our audience will enjoy it. And you gave us more time than we asked for, so I can't okay. ask for I have no idea how much. Okay, it. we're close. Uh, uh, but, yeah, that sounds good to me. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to, uh, to uh, if there's any other questions you have, please be, uh, uh, you know, I will, you will find, I will answer honestly. You may not like it. I may not like it, but I will answer honestly. And I appreciate that. That that is something we could use a lot more of. And so that's why I'm glad you you took this opportunity to come on. Mm-hmm. Where can people find more uh, about you and GVA if they want to? Uh, our website is gunviolencearchive.org. And uh, we are also on Facebook. And we're also on that other thing up there that starts with a T that I'm, <laughs> I'm just afraid to even mention it now. So, uh, you know, but, so we're it's up there. It's quite turbulent we, over there. And all days. we do with, 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 with Twitter is we push out stats daily. So it'll be a different set of stats every day. One day will be school shootings. One day will be drive-bys. One day will be... And what, so, we didn't so have time to get into this, but what what you guys don't just track mass shootings and defensive gun uses, right? There, there's other stuff too, right? You, got, you have a pretty big team. Mass shootings are 6% of our work. The majority of our work is domestic violence shootings, one-on-one, uh, bar fights, uh, fights outside of bars. And, and we can get into this gun-free zone argument at some point if you wish. Because uh, of the most of them uh, that happen are not gun-free gun. They happen in a parking lot. They happen on a city street. They happen in a house. Uh, they happen in a lot of places. Uh, some are in gun-free zones, like a school or a bar. Most aren't. Uh, so, you know, we look at all the big numbers, and mass shootings are, again, 6%. That's all right. they are, both by quantity of incidents and by quantity of victims. Right. Absolutely. Um so, yeah, people can go and check out uh, presumably the other uh, work that you guys do as well, because I know this gets all the attention, but there is other there's certainly there other stuff. Uh, so thank you so much for joining us. Perhaps we'll have you on again in the future, too. Let me know. You take all right, care. Well, we will hopefully see you again. Uh, we're going to head over to the news update now. Thank you so much. Okay. All right. Now it's time for the news update with contributing writer Jake Fogelman. How are you doing this week, Jake? I'm doing all right, Steve. How are you? I'm good. Are you looking forward to uh, Christmas here coming up? Yeah. Uh, looking forward to getting together with family, having a nice Christmas dinner. Uh, yeah. It seems like it's going to be pretty wicked cold out here in Colorado for, <laughs> I don't know <laughs> if you've heard about this bomb cyclone that's going around the country, but it's supposed to be pretty wow. frigid. Are you, gonna, are you getting uh, snow at least? I don't think there's going to be much snow, but they said with wind Ooh. chill, at least the eastern part of Colorado could be negative 50 
on Thursday oh and gosh. Friday. So it's pretty nuts. <laughs> You'll have to do one of those videos where you boil water and then throw it outside. And yeah. Watch it freeze. For, yeah. For, watch it freeze. Um, that's crazy, man. I, I'm going up to Pennsylvania to the farm, um, my mom's farm, and, and to see the rest of my family. But uh, I think we might get some snow up there. Nice. White Christmas. <clears throat> to see. Yeah, that'd be nice. Uh, it'll be a nice getaway from D.C. for a while. Uh, always good to go up to the farm, get some R&R, and see friends and family. So I'm looking forward to that for sure. Uh, we're just doing this episode early this week, so uh, that it doesn't come out on Christmas Day. I think people will probably have other things going on <laughs> rather than listening to the podcast. So I figured we'd do one a little bit earlier and uh, try to keep people up to date as they go into this holiday season here. Um, I'm not sure. We probably won't do an episode next week either. So uh, just try to combine uh, everything into this week and, and do the best to keep people up to date before the new year. Uh, so in that vein, we've got two stories for for everyone this week. Uh, two pretty big developments in uh gun law on two separate sides of the country, two coastal states. Uh, what, what's, what do we got first? Yeah, so we got a permanent injunction issued first off in the California fee shifting case that we've been covering pretty heavily. Um, this, of course, stems from California's attempt to copy Texas when they passed their bounty style abortion ban uh, last year. Uh, it was Gov Governor Gavin Newsom once the Supreme Court uh, didn't at least didn't strike down that law on procedural grounds. He responded with his own version of a law uh, for guns that allows people to sue for assault weapons and ghost guns. But it also creates this crazy fee shifting provision where essentially if you try to sue the state of California over one of their gun laws, you have to be 100% successful on every single one of your claims in your lawsuit in order to, otherwise you have to pay the state your legal fees. You have to cover their attorney's fees. <laughs> and yeah. So, and your, your lawyers are also liable. Right. Yeah. Which is uh, pretty unique too. personally right. liable, which is a, yeah. obviously a, a massive disincentive to sue the state. Um, right. And, and it actually did cause some uh, gun rights groups to drop off of certain cases to sort of uh, prioritize which laws they were going to challenge because of this provision. Um, and, you know, that's, that's, by the way, something we predicted was going to happen after Texas passed their their law, you know, it was fairly, I think, clear that, at least to me, that this was going to get copied somewhere else and applied to something that Democrats don't like. And so in this case, it was uh, guns. It, it didn't, you know. And then, of course, the Texas law became moot anyway, because the Supreme Court struck down Roe v. Wade um, right after they passed this, this law. But regardless, uh, California went through with sort of spiting Texas and right. passing this law, uh, which they all, all the officials basically said was unconstitutional. In fact, uh, the attorney general, Rob Bonta, right, a Democrat in California, he had to uh, remove himself from the case. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, he had to file a brief basically saying he's stepping away because he had a whole stream of past statements on California's law, calling it, and I quote, blatantly unconstitutional. Um, so it's kind of tough to then go and defend a law that, by all accounts, all the California officials admit is a direct copycat of this law that you've called blatantly unconstitutional. So he stepped yeah. away. Um, yeah, he was facing potential sanctions from the court if he didn't do that because the that's right. The gun rights groups out there, uh, it was, I think it was specifically California Rifle and Pistol Association, 
had filed a motion to <laughs> that could have resulted in sanctions for him if he hadn't stepped away. That's right. Um, so, you know, pretty embarrassing all around, I think, for California officials in this case. Uh, but how is how's the governor spinning this, by the way? I was going to say, he doesn't seem to be taking it as very embarrassing. Uh, he put out a statement pretty uh, soon after the ruling got handed down, uh, basically saying he thanked Judge Roger Benitez, by the way, was the judge that handed down this injunction. Listeners may know him from several previous gun cases out of California where he's ruled against the state's gun laws in the past. Uh, but he put out a statement saying, you know, thank you, Judge Benitez. Uh, we've been saying all along that Texas's anti-abortion law is outrageous. Um, basically, he just framed it as a indictment of Texas's abortion law, even though this case very specifically dealt with California's version, which Benitez, even in his opinion, drew a, a distinction between California's law and Texas's law because the fee shifting provision is a little more extreme in California's yeah. case. So he's, he's pretty defiant about the whole thing, to be honest. Yeah, he sort of took this tone of, well, this was why we passed the, the law right. in the first place to get it declared unconstitutional. Uh, I think there's a couple problems with that point of view, though, or that argument, which is for one, just like uh, Rob Bonta, who stepped away because he didn't he couldn't defend the law because he thought it was unconstitutional. Well, in the lead up to that decision, he had gone around trying to avoid challenges to this law. He tried to moot them ahead of time by uh, effectively s declaring that the, the state wouldn't pursue damages in any of the gun cases that were already in front of them uh, as as a way of trying to avoid judges uh, looking at this. Uh, bon uh, of course, Benitez is sort of famously, um, uh, you know, averse to California's le uh, legal tricks or, or legal maneuvering. When it comes to gun cases, he's ruled against a number of their gun laws. So he didn't buy this this sort of uh, attempt to sidestep the issue. And uh, and so he ruled against he ruled the way that like everyone would expect it to happen. I think the one of the issues with this was just like the issue in the in the Texas case is that it's uh, there weren't any uh, attempts to actually enforce this law. So it made it hard to challenge it before. Uh, you know, it's much harder to challenge something when when there isn't um, an attempt to enforce it. Right. So uh, but Benitez, I think, got fed up with the game of them, um, you know, of, of them trying to, to pass the buck on, on this law and just decided to go through with uh, a, a case against it. And, um, <clears throat> you know, it, it, it is probably bad news for the Texas law, too, I would assume. But it's a little odd to um, go out. I mean, I think one of the main complaints that they had, that, that California had about this case getting hurt at all, was that they wanted to wait until Texas's law got declared unconstitutional before their law. It's like, that's not, that's not how things that's work. That's not how it works. <laughs> yeah. That's not how it works. It's like that old, it's like that old uh, Geico ad. Or whatever, you know, it's not how any of this works. Um you know, so, so they wanted to seem pretty clear to me that if if a judge had upheld the Texas law, that then California would switch their tune to saying, well, it is constitutional now. Uh, and then they would try to enforce it. So, uh, you know, they're being a bit disingenuous, it feels like California officials on this one. But uh, but yeah, so now uh, I mean, I guess 
doesn't seem likely they're going to appeal this decision, does it? I wouldn't assume based on that statement, that sort of celebratory statement from Newsom. Right. Uh, he wasn't outraged at all by the decision. He, he just sort of took it as him spiking the football that his his culture war symbol <laughs> to, you know, yeah. turned on Cap, Don Texas, I guess. So it's that, that, like celebrating that he passed an unconstitutional right. law, basically. Right. And so wasted I knew taxpayer it was unconstitutional money. and I passed it anyway. <laughs> right. Like, okay. Exactly. I, I, it's not really a, a, a win. It doesn't feel like a win from the outside here, but okay. Uh, yeah, obviously, I get the philosophical point that they don't like Texas law, and that's fair. But, you know, passing a law you know is unconstitutional, is, is uh, it doesn't seem like a win. Either way, uh, that's not the only thing that's happened this week. Uh, on the other side of the country... In New Jersey, we had a significant development as well. What what happened there? Yeah, so we finally have our second state to pass uh, a quote-unquote Bruin response bill, basically a state that was formerly May issue um, that was affected by the Supreme Court's ruling in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin, uh, striking down basically subjective carry laws that don't allow, it didn't allow the issuing of permits on objective grounds. Yeah, um, May issue laws is what, what we call them, right? Right. Um, and so obviously New York was at hand in that case and they responded pretty quickly with their, their wide ranging, sweeping, restricting concealed carry law that's been in and out of courts for the last few months that we've been covering. Um, but up until this point, not, a, uh, no other States had joined them in that uh, pursuit right. until California tried, but yeah. uh, couldn't, couldn't quite get across the line. Yeah. They got too aggressive and tried to pass a, a special um, immediate emergency, yeah, emergency yeah. bill. Um, and, and it cost them. But now we have New Jersey actually officially, the legislature at least, has officially passed a Bruin response bill. Uh, as of recording this podcast, uh, Governor Phil Murphy has yet to sign the bill into law, but we all expect that he's going to do so. Um, and it's it's pretty similar to the New York law. Uh, there's, I think there's over 20, quote unquote, sensitive places where even licensed carry will be illegal. There's a whole bunch of new ba background checks. You have to get extra references that can't be family members. You have to have people that can speak to your character during the application process. Um, they upped the, the uh, application fees to $200 just to apply, plus an additional, I believe, $50 to have your permit issued. So a total of $250 just for the application portion. Uh, they added a bunch of training requirements to include both in-person classroom training and live fire range training. And probably one of the bigger, more controversial uh, additions that isn't in the New York law is the requirement for insurance for if you want to carry in public, they say you have to have minimum liability insurance, uh, a policy that covers up to $300,000 in quote unquote injury and death, which is uh, a little interesting because it creates yeah. a sort of who's injury and death. Like, are you, are you uh, trying to cover people for um, criminal acts? Right. Obviously you That's can't the hang do up. that. Yeah. This is the same same sort of idea that we've covered in the past with, uh, was it San Jose? Yep, that's right. Uh, out in California that is trying to require insurance for gun ownership. Um, I mean, honestly, none of these things seem very long for this world in the wake of Bruin. Uh, there's also, they also have the private property that's uh, right. ban as well. Um, you know, basically it applies to public accessible private property. So things like stores or restaurants. Um, in the entire history of the country, in every state up to this point, the rule had been that private property owners can ban people from carrying on their property if they so choose to, but they have to post a sign to let people know that they're doing that. 
And so New York's and New Jersey's innovation here is just to flip the whole thing on its head. Um, it's illegal. Not not only is it off limits, it's a felony right. to carry on private property without the, unless it's posted that you can. Um, so, you know, these and again, these most of these controversial provisions that New Jersey is now passed into law were already been struck down by judges in New York. Uh, they are all enforced right now in New York because the Second Circuit is waiting to hear uh, an appeal to those decisions. But three different federal judges in New York, I believe, or is three, yeah, three different judges, if I'm remembering that correctly, it's either two or three. There's several cases, and it's like three or four cases, but uh, have struck down a bunch of different portions of New York's law. It does feel like they just want to get right back to the Supreme Court to lose again. I just... Uh, you know, there's some of this stuff you can argue um, over. Uh, you know, it's a novel approach, so maybe they'll maybe there's some room for error here or some possibility that these things hold up. But so much of this is just a, a direct <laughs> sort of middle finger to the Supreme Court. To be That's honest right. with you, yeah. it just doesn't seem like there's a lot of actual. Uh, you know, wiggle room in any of this stuff because it's just trying to go directly against what the court ruled in Bruin. And I don't see how it doesn't just end up back at the Supreme Court for another uh, sort of round of getting these laws struck down. Um, I mean, unless it just doesn't make it that far. Right. Uh, like they, they could lose at the lower courts, uh, which have been fairly um, faithful to the Bruin decision in reviewing these these specific laws so far. Um, but yeah, it's kind of shocking in a certain way. I, I didn't, we've talked about this before with New York, but I think my analysis piece at one point was called, thank you, sir, may I have another, right? That's what New York is telling the court. Like they, it's like they want to have these laws struck down because they're, they're just so blatantly against what the court had ruled, uh, especially stuff like the private property ban or the sensitive places expansions to be almost everywhere, right? It's like, it's harder to legally carry a gun in New York now than it was before the Bruin rule. Right. <laughs> like, and I don't know what, who thinks that's going to hold up, you know I mean? Like it's, it's, it's one thing to say, well, maybe some of these other laws unrelated to gun carry will, will stand like a permit to purchase law in, in the Oregon, um, uh, the Oregon ballot initiative, right? Like permit, it's sort of like a shall issue gun carry law. So maybe that'll be acceptable um, even if it doesn't have a historical analog because of, you know, the, the way that Kavanaugh and, and Roberts had approved of shall issue permitting regimes and Bruins in the concurrence. And you can get into this stuff about, all right, well, how far is this going to go? What, what laws are going to be found to have historical analogs, but <clears throat> these carry laws in New Jersey and New York, and probably in California next year sometime yeah. are going to like, it's just, there's not really much room to, to have some sort of uh, nuanced conversation about them. They are just kind of ex the exact things that Bruins said you can't do. And you sort of see, uh, saw this with some of the lawmaker deliberation while this bill was being debated, because this was like a two-month process in New Jersey. But you, you heard 
you know, time and time again from Democratic lawmakers that were supporting this bill saying, well, we know that I'm sure there's going to be a ton of legal challenges as soon as we pass this. And, you know, we're going right at the Supreme Court. And it seems like they're they're well aware that this is just inviting, you know, a new onslaught of, of challenges that they're probably going to lose. But they just do right. it anyway. It's very odd. Um, I mean, it, it does remind me, I will say, of how some cities operate in, you know, red states or purple states. Uh, Philadelphia comes to mind, obviously, yeah. where they're sort of constantly passing gun restrictions that are not legal under state law and constantly losing in court. Um, they do this basically a couple times a year, actually, usually, and they seem unperturbed by the fact that they they're always losing. Um, they seem to know that they can't do this stuff and they just do it anyway. And uh, the only the only reason, you know, wh why you would go about that is uh, if it were politically popular, or at least at least not politically unpopular, I guess. Yeah. Um, and so I get, you know, it's probably not that unpopular for New York and New Jersey lawmakers to give a middle finger to the Supreme Court on this issue, because in their states, um, while there are millions of gun owners in both states, you know, it's uh, they're very deep blue states that just, I don't know, I guess they they like the idea of fighting the court on this issue or, or what have you, but it's, uh, these aren't, these don't strike me as serious attempts to respond to the ruling. They just strike me as things that are, I guess, political messaging, uh, at the cost of uh, a lot of taxpayer money and time for those affected by the laws. So I don't know. We'll see how it plays out. Maybe I'm wrong. Right. <laughs> Maybe, Maybe the court gets bored and doesn't go back to this issue or something. Uh, that's that's like the only hope I could see for these laws uh, surviving very long is just the, the court kind of goes back into its 10 year hibernation on gun issues and just never takes up a case like this. But I don't know. I, I could see these laws turning out just like uh, Sertano did in 2016, where it was just a, um, you know, a two page opinion where they're like, this is obviously against what we had ruled. Right. You can't do this. Um, and it was unanimous like that. That wouldn't shock me. Uh, so we'll we'll see. We'll have to, of course, keep an eye on how these things develop. But uh, in the meantime, of course, this is going to affect people who live in New Jersey and want to carry a firearm. Uh, unfortunately, for for those of you who are in that position, uh, you will probably win out in the end, but it's probably going to take a while. I think that's the most unfortunate part, because unlike New York, who passed theirs right away, there's a, a few month gap where people in New Jersey, they, they weren't enforcing their justifiable need clause, but they also didn't have this sweeping restrictive law. So it's kind of unfortunate for folks that were finally looking for a, a chance to get a carry permit in New Jersey. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if it if things play out like they did in New York, where you get lower district courts ruling different portions, different provisions of this law are unconstitutional. And then that goes into effect for a week and then the appeals court issues a stay until yeah. they hear the case. And then we'll have to see what the appeals court actually does with it. Uh, but it sort of feels a bit like a delaying tactic is what uh, I think we're seeing in the second circuit with New York's cases, but uh, you know, we will cover it all. We will certainly be here to give updates and, you know, maybe it goes in a direction that I'm not expecting, you know, that's always possible. So either way, that's all we've got for you this week. Uh, if you like the show, please rate and uh, share it. You know, whatever you're listening to this on, 
your favorite podcasting app or watching it on YouTube. Give us a thumbs up or a five-star rating and a little review helps grow the audience. Um, Share it with your friends, of course. And uh, if you want more from us, you can go and sign up for our newsletter over at thereload.com, free weekly newsletter. And if you really like the reporting that we do, you can, of course, buy a membership. That's how we fund our journalism here at The Reload through uh, memberships, through subscribers. So uh, head on over to thereload.com and check out the options today. But we will see you guys again real soon.